Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he first reveals it unto his servants, the prophets. Are you thankful that we serve that kind of a God? That he's not just out to surprise us? That he's not just, uh, he's not just uh, trying to play uh, catch me if you can? Um, I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that we have a God who has revealed to us so much in his word. And in the last few uh, sermons together, we've been exploring early Adventist history. This is sort of a, the year of history here in Dalton since we are celebrating our 75th anniversary. We had that special celebration in April. And we've been looking at church history and we've moved now to Adventist church history. And what we're t- trying to do today, we're going to be looking more at, at the foundations of Bible prophecy that William Miller, who we talked about last time, and some of his associates discovered as keys to understanding what was going to happen in the future, what was going to happen at the end of time. And so we're going to be looking at the book of Daniel today. I'd invite you to turn with me there. We're going to be looking at Daniel and um, sort of doing an overview of the foundations of of how we get started in the book of Daniel, looking at Daniel chapter 1 and Daniel chapter 2. And um, I think that as we study together today, that you are going to have your faith affirmed in God's ability to take care of you. Let's just bow our heads for an additional word of prayer as we start. Father in heaven, today we are grateful that you have given us ample evidence to trust your word. As we open its pages today, as we look at the, the uh, first few uh, or two chapters of Daniel, as we try to understand more of the foundations of end-time prophecy, I pray that you will send your spirit not only to help us understand what happened historically or will happen in the future, but help us to understand more of you and your love for us, your care for us, and that we can indeed trust you. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to begin in Daniel chapter 1. So if we look at the book of Daniel, we see that it's the first uh, book that was dedicated to end-time Bible prophecy, telling of what's going to happen in the last days. We also notice that it gives us the framework for understanding the rest of end-time Bible prophecy. I like to talk about Daniel as sort of being like, you know, your kindergarten class or your first grade where you're just learning phonics and, and, and some basic principles of mathematics. And no one goes from kindergarten to calculus, right? We don't just go from kindergarten to, you know, advanced, you know, vectors, physics or something. No, we, we have intermediate steps. We have that first foundation that's laid in mathematics, and, and we learn, we build on that foundation. And that's the way prophecy works. That's the way the Bible works. When we look at the book of Revelation, we see so much confusion in the world today about that book. And one of the reasons there's so much confusion today about Revelation is simply because people start there. It's sort of like picking up a calculus textbook without going through primary school and basic mathematics. It doesn't work. You just get confused, right? I mean, I'm pretty sure that's what would happen. And so Daniel is actually the, the, uh, the, the, the t- tutorial, you might say, for how to understand in time symbolic Bible prophecy. And so we want to see the interpretive principles that are seen here by comparing the prophecy and the interpretation. You'll notice, for example, in the book of Daniel, the first few visions that Daniel has in Daniel chapter 2, we'll 
It was really Nebuchadnezzar's dream first, wasn't it? But then he has, um, Daniel has the, the dream or vision given to him as well. Daniel chapter 7, he has another one. Daniel chapter 8 and 9, um, we, we, we find another, or two more vision actually. What you find in those passages are the, the symbolic vision being given, and then right after it, in the same place in the Bible, the same chapter in most cases, Daniel 8 didn't quite get finished, got finished in Daniel 9, but um, you find right there the interpretation. So what you can do is you can compare the, the, the symbolic vision with the interpretation of the vision, and you begin to learn principles of how symbolic Bible prophecy works. Does this make sense? And then when you get to the book of Revelation, God simply expects us to already have the context of the book of Daniel. You don't have any interpretations given. You just have the symbolic prophecies. But if we use the same principles that Daniel teaches us, Revelation can be understood as well. So this is an important book. It's important for us. And we're going to begin in Daniel chapter 1. We won't, we won't take all the time to go through the entire story. We could, we could just have a sermon on Daniel chapter 1 today. But some people say, well, I just want to look at the prophecies in the book of Daniel. I'm not interested in the stories. You know, Daniel chapter 1, you have Daniel and his three friends arriving in Babylon. In Daniel chapter 3, you have the, the plain of Dura, the great golden image, and the, the fiery furnace. And Daniel chapter 4 and 5, you have the, the, the stories of Nebuchadnezzar and the fall of Babylon. And those are just stories. Those are great bedtime stories. Wrong. Those are great bedtime stories, but they're more than just stories. Those stories are very important to the whole understanding of Bible prophecy. And in fact, in the book of Revelation, John the Revelator borrows the stories, the stories of Babylon, the stories of the fall of Babylon, the stories of the, the, the image that's set up and there's a death decree. Um, if you don't worship the image, all those stories are borrowed in the book of Revelation. They're used as prophecies. So they're very important for us to take some note of. And so I want us to start in Daniel chapter 1. And I want us to know what happened here. We know that Nebuchadnezzar conquered Babylon, uh, conquered Jerusalem, and brought some of the royalty and some of the youngest, brightest minds to Babylon. In Daniel chapter 1, let's begin with verse 3. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. And the king, it goes on and says, the king appointed them the best food he knew. His own food. They could eat of the king's table. Now, this was, this was a high honor. These were delicacies. This was carefully pre prepared food, fit for the king himself. And the king is being very generous in preparing this food for Daniel and his associates. We know, of course, the four of them, Daniel and his three friends, but there were others who came from Jerusalem. And the king is going out of his way to give them great honor and a great, a great uh, privilege to eat at his table. But you know the story, right? Daniel says, wait a minute, there are foods on that table that I cannot conscientiously eat. Now, some of the Israelite boys, they said, look, we don't have a choice. <laughs> Do you know those chains that we brought us in from uh, Jerusalem? Do you want to go back in those chains? You saw your own family members being killed. Do you want to be killed? We don't have a choice. And so they went along. 
But the Bible says in verse 8 that Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now, we could spend so much time just talking. It's an amazing story, an amazing story. Daniel had, get this, Daniel had the Bible says, been brought into favor with the prince of the eunuchs. Now, that little phrase, been brought into favor, I believe, conceals many, many sermons and books worth of character. Do you catch what I'm saying? It's not like God just worked some sort of abracadabra and Daniel was brought into favor. Later on in the story, we're going to see that Daniel answers the king with wisdom and Daniel had this unique combination. He was God-fearing, and I believe that God allowed him to grow in his ability to relate to people. Brothers and sisters, friends of mine, can I just divert a little bit from the story here and say that I believe God still would have us learn to get along with other people? to win their confidence, not try to force their hands. You understand what I'm saying? Daniel, it's amazing. If you look at the story of Daniel, Daniel not only has this amazing breakthrough in Daniel chapter 1, he not only saves the lives of the wise men in Daniel chapter 2, but when Babylon is gone and finished, the empire has fallen, Daniel stays on with the enemy empire as a vice president. Now, how often does that happen? It doesn't happen. Except God blesses you to bring you into favor. And it's not just an accident. I believe Daniel cultivated good relationships. He won hearts and minds with wisdom and with tact, with, the, with his spirit, with his attitude, with his openness, with his friendliness, with his care and concern. Daniel was brought into favor with the prince of the eunuchs. Now, this is what, this is what um, the prince said to Daniel. Verse 10. The chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who has appointed your food and drink, for why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? Then you would endanger my head before the king. And so listen, Daniel, you're not just asking for some little favor here. My life is on the line. If, if, the, if the king sees that I'm not doing a good job of taking care of you, it's over for me. That's the, that's the world we live in here in Babylon. But Daniel has purposed in his heart, right? And so Daniel says, look, I don't care what the king of, 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 of Babylon says, Nebuchadnezzar says. It's not that he didn't care because he had wisdom intact and he knew how to deal with people. But he says, it's more important for me that I do what my God says I should do than for me to do what the king says I should do. And here in Daniel chapter 1 is one of the first foundations of end-time Bible prophecy. The first foundation we discover is that end-time events, in fact, if you look at all of the major, major prophecies relating to God's people, whether you look at what would happen with the captivity, whether you look at what would happen with the, with the uh, restoration of Jerusalem, whether you look at what happened with the coming of Christ, whether you look at what happens with the falling away in the 1260 years, time times, the dividing of times, the great apostasy. The great issue 
and even all the way down to the end of time, the great issue is, who are you going to obey? Are you going to obey God? Or are you going to obey man? And it's right here in Daniel chapter 1. We're introduced. Daniel says, I'm going to obey God no matter what it costs. I'm going to obey God. And the Bible says that God blessed Daniel and his three friends. You, you know, they had that test of ten days. They ended up looking better. They were doing better. And so they were allowed for the continuation of their studies to stay on a simple diet, a diet that would be according to God's plan for them. And it says in verse 18, Now at the end of the days when the king had said that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king interviewed them. And among them all, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they served before the king. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in his realm. Amazing story of someone who obeyed God rather than obeying men. The great underlying issue throughout end-time Bible prophecy is who are you going to obey? Who am I going to obey? And that's the foundation we find in Daniel chapter 1. Now let's look at Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2, we find more foundations. If we look through the story really quickly, we, we're going to try to move quickly because I want to get to the actual vision, the actual dream here today. Um, but let's just remind ourselves of what happened. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream one night. He awakes, perhaps in a sweat, knowing it's an important dream, knowing it's, 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 it's something that is, is very, very vivid and was very, very, uh, uh, very emotional for him, and yet he can't remember what it was. And so he awakes, and he, he's forgotten the dream, so he calls the wise men, and the wise men are come, uh, come into the palace early in the morning, and um, he tells them, look, I've had a dream. I, uh, I know it was an important dream. This was a very troubling dream, but... I don't remember the dream, so I'm here to ask you to tell me what I dreamed and to tell me what it means. Now, remember, this sounds very draconian and very, very, you know, just presumptuous to ask human beings to tell me what I dreamed. But remember, these wise men had claimed to have this kind of power. They claimed to have power to get in touch with the gods of Babylon and to be able to, to, to divine mysteries and so forth. And so they were not being asked something that they hadn't said they could do. And in the past, I suppose, when they explained what dreams meant, they knew they could make up anything they really wanted, right? Because no one could say what it meant or didn't mean. But now they knew they were in a hard place because this is what they're thinking, okay, what if actually he does remember what he dreamed? And this is a test. How, you see, how could he be confident in the interpretation if he didn't know that we could tell him what we dream, he dreamed? And they're conferring among themselves and saying, listen, king, tell us the dream and we'll tell you the interpretation. How's that? No, you tell me the dream and the interpretation. This is very difficult. And you'll notice in there, we won't take time to look at the verse, but you'll notice in there they said, what the king has asked of you of us, this is very, very difficult, and there's on, uh, the only people that could, or the only way, the only, the only beings that could tell the king what he's asked are the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. <laughs> they didn't know the God of heaven, did they? Because the God of heaven dwells with flesh, dwells with men. 
And so the king is saying, tell me the dream and the interpretation. The wise men are saying, tell us the dream, then we'll tell you the interpretation. Finally, the king gets angry. And he says, look, if you don't tell me the dream and the interpretation, you and your families are dead. Your houses are going to be taken over, plowed up, burned up, gone. Your, your family tree ends here. It's your choice. Now, can you imagine how the news of that split around, spread around the city of Babylon? I, I remember one time I was in Russia, and I was preaching on Daniel chapter 2. And um, I actually, was at this point in the story, I, <laughs> I was trying to make it realistic to this group of people, you know, who haven't uh, had much, and much background in the Bible. And I said, it would be, ima imagine the headlines. If President Putin had decreed that the entire Russian parliament was to be executed, and the entire auditorium broke into applause. <laughs> and I, I stood there for a minute rather befuddled, and I whispered over to my interpreter, my translator, why are they laughing? Why are they clapping? And he whispered back, they don't like their government. <laughs> but this would, this would make news, don't you think? The entire intelligentsia of the nation, the, the wisest men of Babylon are, are going to be executed. It would be the headlines screamed across the papers of the day. And when they came to tell the news to Daniel, you know the story, how when they came to tell the news to Daniel, he was rather shocked. And he said, why is this such an urgent matter? Evidently, he hadn't been among those who were called that morning. And so he says, look, just, just let's ask for time. And so the Bible records that... Um, that, the, uh, uh, that when, let's just look at it in, in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 14. Then with counsel and wisdom, here again, Daniel is, is revealing his abilities to talk to people. With counsel and wisdom, Daniel answered Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He answered and said, why is the decree from the king so urgent? And then Arioch told him the story. So, verse 16, Daniel went in and asked the king to give him time that he might tell the king the interpretation. Then the, uh, Daniel went to his house and made the decision known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah's companions that they might seek mercies from the God of heaven concerning the secret so that Daniel and his companions might not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. And verse 19 says, Then the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. Now you'll notice what Daniel says in the next few verses. If you're just going to scan down those next verses, chapter, uh, verses 20 through 25, you'll notice that Daniel is saying, Whew, that was close. I almost died. Do you notice what he's talking about here? Where is Daniel's focus? Now listen, Daniel has just come a few inches away from death. I mean, they came to execute him. Now, you and I have some trials, right? But when was the last time someone knocked on your door and said, okay, your time's up, I'm here, it's over. I mean, I've never had that type of experience. I've had hard times. I've had difficult experiences, as I'm sure you have. But it would be very easy for Daniel in this type of a situation to become a little bit more egocentric, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it, wouldn't it be easy for him to start thinking, poor, I mean, poor me, we're, our lives are on the line. Do you know what? Daniel wasn't even thinking about himself. 
as the secret is revealed, he's just praising God. And you're going to see as the chapter goes on, there is so little of Daniel involved because his focus is on the God that he serves. Sometimes I'm convinced, when I study these passages, I'm convinced again, there's too much me in my life. I feel sorry for me. I think of my difficulties. I need to realize it's not about me. This whole great controversy isn't about me being saved. It's about Jesus Christ being known, His character being known, and His kingdom being restored. So the foundations that we see here in Daniel chapter 2 is the foolishness of man's wisdom, first of all. And secondly, we see that God's in charge. Look with me a few verses down. Daniel gets brought into, God, Daniel gets brought into the king's presence. And um, he tells Arioch, we know it, don't destroy the, the wise men of Babylon, take me before the king. And so let's skip down to verse 25. Then Arioch quickly brought Daniel before the king and said thus to him, I have found a man of the captives of Judah who will make known to the king the interpretation. You notice where Arioch's focus is? I, first of all, <laughs> I have found a man. You see, Arioch didn't know the God of heaven who dwelt among men. We can't blame him for this. But Daniel says to the king, well, first the king asks him, Daniel, are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen its interpretation? In my excitement at that point, my, my, my elation at having escaped the sword's edge, I think I'd be saying, yes, I can. Daniel doesn't go there. Daniel says, notice with me, verse 27, the secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers cannot declare to the king. A little bit rubbing in here, isn't it? The foolishness of man's wisdom. He's reminding the king that there was others who tried and couldn't. And he's about to say, all those failed, but I can, right? Is that what he says? But... There is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head upon your bed were these. And you know, God is amazing. God did not just reveal to Daniel what dream Nebuchadnezzar had. Because I remember Nebuchadnezzar forgot the dream. So how would he know if Daniel was just making it up? Right? God went one step further and told Daniel what Nebuchadnezzar had been thinking about before he fell asleep, something he would remember. You, O king, as you were laying there about to go to sleep that night, you were worrying about the future. Ah, Nebuchadnezzar must have thought, that's right. I was worried about what's going to happen and generations ahead. How long is my empire? All those questions, all these problems. You were worried about the future. And the God who reveals secrets 
has made known to you what will be in the latter days. I want you to know that Daniel's focus is not on himself. Daniel's focus is on God. Daniel's uplifting God here, not him. Why? Because he recognizes this is about God. It's not about Daniel. And he, is, he said here in verse, in, in, previously in his prayer of praise in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 25, which he skimmed over. But um, he says in verse 21, he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Listen, Daniel knew one thing. Daniel knew that God was in charge. Daniel knew that God had his hand in the affairs even of pagan Babylon. Daniel knew that the king's heart, as it says in Psalms, is in the hand of God. He turns it whichever way he wants. Daniel knew the God he served was on the throne. Not the throne of a worldly empire, but the throne of the universe. And if God's in charge, and if he's on the throne of the universe, friends then we can trust Him, and He's the one that we ought to be turning to. He's the one that we ought to be looking to. We ought to allow Him to help us with our problems, our troubles, our worries about the future. And so two more foundations, or three foundations, I guess we might say, from Daniel chapter 2 as we move on. First of all, the foolishness of man's wisdom. Secondly, God's in charge. There's a God in heaven who is still on the throne, who still sets up kings and takes down kings. And if he does that in, in, in worldly governments, he can certainly do that in our lives, in our homes, in our churches, in our communities. God's in charge. It's not about us. It's about him. Foundations of Bible prophecy. So let's look on now at the dream that Daniel um, interprets and explains to Nebuchadnezzar. Remember, the dream is given to both of them, and it could be called the ABCs of prophetic interpretation, the basics, the, the very beginning rudimentary um, explanation of how prophecy can be understood. We saw, as I mentioned, both the dream and the interpretation are found in Daniel chapter 2. And in later prophecies, it's assumed that we remember the principles that we discover here. So let's just look at this dream, Daniel chapter 2, and um, let's begin reading with verse 31. Daniel chapter 2 and verse 31. This is the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. It says, You, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image. This great image, whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. This image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You watched while its stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron and the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found, and the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the dream. Now we will see the interpretation. So this is how Daniel explains to the king. You saw this image that had a head of gold. It had a chest and arms of silver and belly and thighs of brass, legs of iron and and feet made of iron mixed with clay. Quite a remarkable amalgamation, we might say. And uh, then that wasn't all. Um, Daniel said, you watched while there was a stone. That stone was cut out without hands, and it, it sort of came from nowhere, in other words. And it destroyed the image, and it disappeared like the, like the chaff is blown away from the threshing uh, floor. And then after that, that stone filled the whole earth. It grew to fill the whole earth, and... Um, 
and it, it took over basically what had been all of those empires. Quite a remarkable dream. Now, this would be even more remarkable, I suppose, if it was a dream given to an idolater, which Nebuchadnezzar was. You see, here is a, an idol, an, a god in his way of thinking, and just as he might be about to kneel down and worship this magnificent image, poof, this stone appears from nowhere and destroys the image and, and then becomes just this great mountain. I mean, that has to be important, right, in an idolater's mind. You know, friends, most of you, most of you I know, this is like, you've heard this since you were knee-high to a grasshopper. And um, it can get a little bit mundane, perhaps. But I want you to know that this story is an exciting story in Daniel chapter 2. It really is. It's remarkable. It's remarkable. And, 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 and you know, we, t we were talking with Michael about some of you going on a Bible study. You just have to go and see it. You just have to see it with your own eyes, friends. A Daniel 2 Bible study blowing the socks off of these people. They're like, what? No way. And, and, and when you see that with your own eyes, am I right, Daniel? When you see that with your own eyes, you start to say, oh, well, maybe I do know enough to share something with someone else. You understand what I'm saying? We don't realize how much we know. This is like old hat to us. It's, it's revolutionary. There was, there was a couple years ago, we used to have the Youth for Jesus program, ASI sponsored, and I was involved with for some time. And I, um, the Youth for Jesus program just a couple years ago was in Cincinnati. And the hotel that the, many of the participants were staying in for the convention, not for the Youth for Jesus, but for the convention, was the same hotel that the Bengals were staying in for a practice the night before. It was like, or a game, I guess. Um, it was just four blocks from the stadium. Back Friday night of ASI, there was a game. Um, and so one of these youth for Jesus, these teenagers, finds himself on the elevator with one of the NFL players. Well, what are you doing here? Well, we're here with a youth group doing da 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 giving Bible studies to people. Would you like a Bible study? Sure. So he brings this teenager up to his room, in a suite, and... Um, invites from his friends or whatever, and they sit down and doing whatever they're doing, and then this kid gives him a Daniel 2 Bible study. In the middle of the Bible study, this NFL player leaps off the couch, jumps on his feet, and he says, are you telling me that the Bible foretold these empires before they even happened? And he said, yes. He said, this is amazing. Why don't more people know about this? Good question, right? Why don't more people know about this? Maybe it's our fault. Maybe it's because we don't tell people. But Daniel here is given this vision, and, and Nebuchadnezzar knows it's important, and, and we know it, but hold on, hold on. It gets, it gets even more exciting as we, as we look at the story because there's the, the, the interpretation is just as important. The, we see here that the Bible is giving this end-time prophecy in symbols, Right? Because if you look down when he says, now here's the interpretation, this is the dream, now we'll tell you the interpretation. Verse 37 says, you, O king, are the king, are king of kings, for the God of heaven has given you a kingdom and power and strength and glory. And uh, the, the uh, end of the verse says, you are this head of gold. So what does the head of gold represent? It represents Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire, right? We understand that. 
And he says, after you, verse 38, shall arise another kingdom inferior to you, yours, then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth, and the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, and as much as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything, that like iron crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. And whereas you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. And as you, as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall be, not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever." And that stone you saw cut out without hands, that's God's kingdom that He is going to make known. And um, is, He goes on in the end of verse 45, He says, The dream is certain and the interpretation is sure. Now, there are critics of the book of Daniel. There are critics of the book of Daniel that say Daniel could not have been written back, you know, 4, 4, 5, 600 B.C. It must have been a later work. It had to have been during the time of the Syrians or Greek Empire, maybe after. There's all kinds of higher criticism of the book of Daniel. If you don't know that, now you do. Um, but there is no critics of the book of Daniel that places its authorship after the demise of the Roman Empire. There are none. Nobody can do that. I mean, we have manuscripts from the book of Daniel that go back well before that, the book of, before the time of Christ even. Christ quotes from the book of Daniel. Um, none of the critics say that Daniel was a post-Roman work. And the reality is, friends, that as, as God describes here these empires, as He describes here these empires, He's describing a sequence of events in that part of the world. The Western Roman Empire would be the largest extent of it. He's describing a sequence of events that came to pass exactly as foretold. After Babylon, we won't take time to go into the whole story of the fall of Babylon, but after Babylon, we have the Medo-Persian Empire, don't we? We have that, uh, that, the empire of Babylon being replaced by the, the Medo-Persian Empire. After Medo-Persia, we have Greece. And these are, some of these are improbable. You know, you would not expect a weaker power to overthrow a stronger power, would you? Do you realize that, um, let's take Greece for example, the Battle of Arbella in 331 B.C., when Alexander the Great conquered the, the, uh, Darius III, on the Battle of Arbella, Darius III had over a million soldiers on the field. Alexander the Great had 50,000. Look at the odds. It was a resounding defeat for Darius that he would never recover from, and Alexander took over um, the, the, the empire. Um, so this is, this is history that you, you would think, well, how could that happen? As equally, equally as, uh, as uh, important a decision would be, how would God know that after Rome there wouldn't be one, another united empire? How would, how would God know? Unless God knows the future. Unless God really can do what He says He can do. Write history books before they happen. So after Rome, there would be this divided kingdom. In fact, it's described there as, as iron and clay, and it says you can't weld iron and clay together. You can't even use JB Weld. You can't use any epoxy or superglue. I don't care what you have. You can't bond iron and clay together. It doesn't work. 
And they say, so they'll mingle themselves with the seed of men, intermarrying throughout Europe. This is a, this is a, this is a prediction, friends, that Europe, as it existed in the Western Roman Empire, would never again be united in, under one flag, one government, one empire. And all you would need to do, all you would need to do to disprove the Bible would be to unite Europe as one nation again. By the way, there are some easier things you could do too, like you know, rebuilding some of the cities in the Old Testament said that would not be rebuilt and that type of thing. Um, but all you would need to do, in fact, some people have tried, don't you think? Some people have tried to do just that. Um, we have Charlemagne, we have Charles V, we have Louis XIV, we have Napoleon, we have Kaiser Wilhelm, we have Hitler. We have modern efforts to re, re, uh, reform the European Union into one nation, um, and it's never completely worked. Let's just look at two examples. Napoleon Bonaparte said, I wanted to found a, uni- a European system, a European code of law, a European court of appeals. There would have been one people throughout Europe. Europe would have become one nation. But seven words from the book of Daniel stood in his way. They shall not cleave one to another. And after he met his defeat at Waterloo, Napoleon Bonaparte is said to have, have reflected these, this short expression, God Almighty has been too much for me. Even he recognized that God had intervened in the course of history. Hitler said something not similar, but he had similar ambitions. This is what Hitler said, See, my people, we do not need anything from God except that He may let us alone. We want to fight our own war with our own guns without God. We want to gain our victory without the help of God. It's almost as if Hitler is saying, Look, God, we just want you to stay out of this. Perhaps he knew that if God was involved, it wouldn't be on his side. We want to fight our own war with our own guns without God. We want to gain our victory without the help of God. March of 1941. And it looked as if nothing could stop the Third Reich. The badly beaten armies of Europe were forced all the way to the coast in a short campaign. You know history. And there it looked like the last hope of the continent would end with the armies forced all the way against the English Channel and, and Hitler on the roll, on the move. Then something very mysterious happened. The fog rolled in. And that fog was so thick, Hitler's armies couldn't move. His planes couldn't fly. Winston Churchill in England got on the radio and in one of the greatest evacuations in all of history, he called for everyone who had a boat, a pleasure craft, a fishing boat, any kind of, if it floated, do your patriotic duty. And these small crafts crossed the English Channel in the cover of fog and evacuated the armies of Europe to England. Whereas, you know, later there would be a rebuilding and a re-equipping and an invading of the continent, and Hitler would fall. How do I know I can trust the Bible? 
One of the reasons I know is because it demonstrates God's claim that He alone can tell the future. And while great men and great empires have tried to, have tried to overthrow this um, certain promise of God's Word, this certain prediction of God's Word, none have yet been able to succeed. And that brings us to the end of the story. We're living in those times of the divided kingdom, right? Feet of iron and clay. And the Bible says in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. And friends, if the other parts of the prophecy were fulfilled as predicted, we can have confidence that this part too will be fulfilled as predicted. Do you ever just get tired of this, this world? Do you ever just get homesick for heaven? Do you ever just say, Lord, how much longer? Well, the good news is, it's not much longer. There is, no, there is no need to fear that this world is going to continue on indefinitely because the promise and the prophecy are very sure. Jesus said, I, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and if I go, I will come again, right? He said that. And the prophecy of Daniel chapter 2 makes it very explicitly clear that just as there was only four empires and then the divided empire, and it happened as predicted, so also that last empire, God's empire, is going to come to pass. It's going to be, it's going to be a reality. The, the Bible says that, um, that the God, in the days of these kings, verse 44, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. The Bible describes in Revelation chapter 21 what that kingdom was going to be like when it says, when God sets that new heaven and new earth, it says He's going to wipe away all tears from their eyes. There's going to be no more death or sorrow or crying. Neither shall be there be any more pain for all of those former things will have passed away. Oh, it's going to be a wonderful place to be. I want to be there in that kingdom. And when Nebuchadnezzar had heard not only the vision, the dream, but its interpretation. The Bible says that he, he was just overwhelmed. And in the last few verses of Daniel chapter 2, we'll go ahead and finish up there. Daniel chapter 2, the last few verses, verse 47 particularly, when Daniel had, um, had said in verse 46, it says, King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face prostrate before Daniel and commanded that they should present an offering and incense to him. They didn't quite, he didn't quite get that. <laughs> it's not about Daniel idea yet either. But he would. You know, King Nebuchadnezzar at this point didn't understand it's not about us, it's about him. And in Daniel chapter 4, we read the story about him losing his mind, thinking it's about him. And finally he learns it's not about us. It's about Jesus. He hasn't learned that yet. The king answered Daniel, verse 47, said, Truly your God is the God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of secrets since you could reveal this secret. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts and made him ruler of the whole province of Babylon and the chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. Friends of mine today, 
What an amazing God we serve. And what I want you to take away today is that in spite of the things that seem to be going awry in your life, in your world, around you, in this world, there's still the same God on the throne today. And He can, He does know your future and mine. And if He knows your future and my future, He can and will prepare us for what tomorrow holds. All we need to do is stay close to Him. All we need to do is remember it's not about us. It's about Him. All we need to do is remember that He cares for us. The Bible says in Revelation and Matthew that God clothes the sparrows of the field. And if He cares for the little birds of the air, how much more does He care for you and me? He cares about your challenges, my challenges. He cares about the pain, the disappointments. Nothing touches our heart that He does not feel. And the end times are upon us, but it's not really about us, it's about Him. He is going to come through, and He's going to take us through if we keep our hands in His I like this song that says many things about tomorrow. I don't seem to understand, but I know who holds the future, and I know who holds my hand. Would you like to have that one, that God that holds the future, holding your hand? Is that your desire today? Father God, you've seen the hearts, the heads nodding, You know the decisions of each one gathered here. Lord, we've said to you today, you're an awesome God. You know the future. You can tell what's going to happen before it occurs. And Lord, we just want that same God who still sits on the throne to be our God. Take our hearts. Take our lives. Take our uncertainties, our heartaches our questions. And Lord, take our hand. Lord, don't let go of us and help us not to let go of you till we can see you face to face in your kingdom that lasts forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.